All right, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Welcome to The Loyalist Connections. Established 1783. So today, we're going to head down to Digby County. Where are we going to go, Larice? Well, we're going to explore Weymouth Falls, Nova Scotia. Sean, we've, uh, you know, talked about the communities and, you know, we always like to, you know, explore our family connections to these communities, you know, as we learn them through this journey. So tell me a little bit about your connection to uh, Weymouth Falls. Yeah, you know, I, I guess I, I've spoken about my grandmother being from Weymouth Falls. So it's interesting. I have some really vivid memories of my childhood and some of those memories, some of the, those memories uh, extend to Weymouth Falls. And uh, I remember the drive to Weymouth Falls, right? So, you know, going into the community specifically, one of the biggest things is just hitting the community there and it being all black, literally. But just this kind of like an oasis, it's just it's beautiful. And, you know, I remember going there, feeling peaceful, being around family and friends, just kids playing the entire day, eating food and lots of laughter. And I think about the Weymouth Fall reunion and just I was maybe to two or three of those as a kid growing up, but never really understood the impact and what the significance was behind this Weymouth Fall re- reunion. It's just a really beautiful experience in there. So I have a lot of really fond memories of with especially Weymouth Falls that are associated with my grandmother just uh her upbringing in the community the story she used to share with me when i played that recording for you before about my grandmother before she passed away and you know just her living conditions there and being in the community so it's uh it's a pretty good it's pretty uh it's a pretty memorable uh place to for me Larissa, what about your connections that's wild well i can definitely uh sense and appreciate you know the fact that the community of weymouth falls you know has a a place dear near to your heart uh, just by the way you talk about it. As for like my connections, I, I don't know of any direct connections. I know my family, you know, lived down in the area. Like I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if something does come up and there is a connection. Yeah, there's always connection. I think you just have to look for it and you'll find it. Right? Talk to the right people, you'll find out. Find out. Guess what? That's why we have this special guest. We're gonna dig into this and try to you know uncover a lot of things that we couldn't uncover through research. That's what we're here to do. So now to introduce our special guest, Sean, who do we got? We have Juanita Peters. Juanita, welcome to the Loyalist Connections podcast. Please tell us about yourself and your connections to the community of Weymouth Falls, Nova Scotia. Yeah. So my name is Juanita Peters. The uh, Peters side of my family comes from Annapolis Royal and... um, and also St. John, New Brunswick. The Peters side is, I'm a descendant of Thomas Peters, who was a black uh, loyalist sergeant, a sergeant with the black loyalists. I've heard his name before. Oh man, it keeps coming up. Yeah, <laughs> it keeps coming up. So if anyone's read the book of Negroes uh, by Lawrence Hill, there are only two true characters that existed in life in that book. One is John Clarkson uh, with the British Navy. Right. The other is my ancestor, Thomas Peters. And Thomas Peters had a connection to Sierra Leone. He did. He's one right. of the founders. Yes. Yes. Wow. In fact, the Canadian government uh, looked at Thomas Peters as a traitor for a long period of time because he was the uh, person who encouraged blacks. If you're not happy with what's happening here, we have these options. We can stay here in hopes that things get better. We can move to a, another part of this land further into the interior. I'm not sure what he meant by that. Or uh, we can load these boats 
and settle into this new colony and create this new colony, which became Freetown. The government considered him a traitor. That is very Yeah, because he led people out of the province. So Mm -hmm. a lot of people left. A lot of people stayed, obviously. Uh, But um, that is part of that initial legacy of the loyalists who came expecting, you know, the land and provisions. And Mm -hmm. if you go to the uh, records, you'll see the white loyalists getting uh, their 10, 100, 200 acres immediately. Uh, And you'll see where the black loyalists waited many, many, many years. In fact, many of them died before uh, those land grants were actually given. And the land is like a, a huge theme of what we explore uh, throughout this journey of learning about, number one, the communities, but the experience of, you know, the, the African Nova Scotians or the blacks that arrived post the American Revolutionary War. So it's amazing. And it's a whole piece that uh, looks different um, depending on where you are right. in the province. Yeah. Um, and so this whole conversation of people actually achieving a place to reside and grow actually doesn't look the same because some people were not actually given land titles. They did not have title to that land, which means that there's no prospect of growth. There's no prospect of wealth because in order to do those things, you must prove that you have the authority to do those things on that land. And it never occurred to even me that that was an issue and a situation because in Weymouth Falls, everybody owned their own land. Yeah. Everybody owns their land. Uh, But, you know, how and why that was different, Uh I'm not sure. so Greenville was like that too, outside of Yarmouth. Like they all owned their land there, which is interesting. So I think, like you said, geographically, each place was a little bit different in terms of how that, who owned land, how it worked, land titles. I mean, we're here at the Black Cultural Center. We know just up the road there's issues with land titles, right? Well, I mean, we haven't even explored Cherry Brook, which is where this uh, community or the culture center, you know, is right. housed, right? Like exactly, yeah. So that's a, it's really interesting. So in Weymouth Falls, they all own their land, right? They all own their own land. They're they're, um, to my knowledge, there were never any. I mean, you shouldn't say never, but there are no <laughs> renters. Yes, uh, people own property. People traded property for more land. They um, acquired. Um, through partnerships, uh-huh. um, you know, larger pieces of land. Yeah, so, so that's and it. all deeded. Yeah, that's all really, deeded. That's really interesting. So I think about my grandmother, where she would have lived, they actually owned that. I, I got to go back and look at that and, and experience that. That's so interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, amazing. So your connection to Weymouth Falls. <laughs> my connection. Okay. So we're going to now move to my mother's side of the family. My nice. mother's maiden name was Jarvis. Okay. So my family names uh, on my mother's side are Jarvis, Lankford, and Cromwell. Lankford. Lankford. Mm. Yeah. So my, my grandmother's mother was a Lankford. She was a cousin to Sam Lankford. What? The boxer. And those names, there's, um, of course... A large majority came through the Black Loyalist uh, migration. And then there were a number of people who came up later through the, as they would say, the Boston states. Right. <laughs> you know, so yeah. okay. that ferry that came uh, through uh, from um, the U.S. to Yarmouth uh, was actually a real living 
uh, entity at that time because it wasn't just a way of people traveling. In those communities, which were largely lumber, fishing, Mm -hmm. and farming, when the farm work was over and or people were looking for other opportunities, they would take that ferry over and work for three, four months. Right. In in Boston, I have a load of letters and postcards from my great-grandmother and her sisters who would go and work in the factories in Boston. And so they worked in, um, I have one where they're working in a lampshade factory. I have one where they're working in a hat factory. Um, there were lots of relatives down there. It was I think there's a, like the, the connection to Boston is is like real and it still exists to oh, this still, day. There's it's, an entire street of Jarvis's in Boston, and yeah, it's it's very real. Well, that connection with the New England planters, right? Yes, it's, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, it's right. We've always been connected with Boston. What's it? Like the annual trees, um, Christmas trees, Christmas trees, right? Yeah. So that's really interesting. That connection, right? Um, you know, I know that in proximity like those seaports right it makes mm-hmm. sense that we're connected in, the, in that kind of capacity yeah. so boston christmas tree uh just to come back to that that mm-hmm. actually came as a thank you for the help from the uh people in boston from the halifax explosion right. uh-huh. so that became an annual gift back yeah. to the city of boston for loaning their expertise and people to help during that tragic event i i can't pass this up because you just mentioned you know Sam Langford. Yeah. Do you remember any stories that were shared about him? Well I can that? tell you this that at the time radio uh, was something that only a few people had in their homes and I can remember my grandfather saying that they would go to his uncle's house to listen to the fight on the radio And uh, if you were lucky enough, that fight that was happening uh, in the States was being broadcast. There was a Mexico fight that they listened to. They all gathered down at his uncle's house um, to to listen to this fight. And, you know, the immense pride Mm -hmm. that people felt, number one, that this was one of their own. Uh And there were people there watching this event live and and their name was being mentioned on the radio and they were splashed across the papers, you know, the next day. You just can't imagine the sense, especially for black men who had very little positive imagery Uh uh, in in the world at Mm -hmm. that time. And that went a long ways into encouraging more people to go across that. You know, we hear the story of people coming up from the States right. and looking for freedom to the mm-hmm. North. I heard about people going to Boston looking for right. that better life because, you know, you're here. Sam did it. Mm-hmm. Sam went with no education, very young man, and he became this uh, icon, you know, in the, in the boxing world, but not just in the boxing world, you know, in entertainment, right? Yes. So... Mm-hmm. So to them, that was like, it created that incentive for everybody to go and try. Um, and so I do tell a story about another cousin of my grandmother's who, with her brothers, goes to the U.S. also looking for an elevation in their life and career. And one actually became an inventor. His name was John Jarvis, uh, a very wealthy inventor, and wound up uh, building a factory in Saugus, Massachusetts, which employed a lot of people from Nova Scotia. Uh-huh. A lot of the men would go down there and work in the factory uh, and John Jarvis died very rich, right? <laughs> very wealthy. Yeah, those are the yeah, stories that we don't hear. Right? No, yeah. we don't. 
And you know what's funny? You said about positive imagery. Yeah. And that's what's interesting too. And it's like as brutal a sport as of boxing, it's also the dream because that gets you out and, and you're able to provide for your family yeah. and yep. economically, economically, but also setting that positive example uh-huh. for your community as well yeah. too, right? And that was really the options for black men mm. were limited. You know, what else could you do that would create that kind of income, which he did receive in the end near the at the height of his career, that could bring you out of poverty. Yes. Uh, and and give you these options. You know, I have these uh, great images of him in the fur coat with his wife and and um, uh, unfortunately, you know, he, his life did not end that way no. because the lack of education didn't show you and teach you, you know, you didn't know how to hold on to that, uh-huh. you know, how to make sure that you had something put away for your yeah. future, make Invest. sure that your family was taken care of yeah. instead of spending it all and spending it also on the team. Right. right, the people who were your managers yep. and your, you know, coaches. The entourage, so that's right. right. Yeah, so yeah. you know, it came in, it came fast, it came furious, and it went out just as fast mm. and furious when he got sick. You yeah. know, so his end of days were not um, were not good. He died uh, blind mm-hmm. um, yeah, and uh, alone. Um, I actually have a letter from Sam Langford at the end of days. He's writing to his grandson, and I suspect that he is saying it. And it's written by the nurse or the caretaker because the right. writing is very good. Right. But it's in his language. So it's an actual letter that was sent from him to his grandson. And the grandson must have said, um, I'm 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 boxing and or something like that, because he's he's giving him tips right. on on what to do uh-huh. in his, his boxing career. So yeah. No, that's that's pretty amazing. And you know, I think about boxers in general and it's not an easy life. And sacrificing their body in their order body, to provide right? for their family. I would challenge anybody to be very careful of thinking about what you would or would never do. Mm. Because That's poverty true. challenges us all. Yep. And when you have eventually other people to take care of, I think the limits are not as clear you know, as to what we may or may not do, what we would mm-hmm. put ourselves through mm-hmm. to make sure that our families are fed safe and taken care of so so dr barb hamilton hinch said too right you know you're in survival mode you have to figure that out i mean it's you'll do anything for your family you mentioned like sam langford uh you know and thomas peters as like you know some of the significant people like of the time and i mean within the community uh, or from the community you know were there other any other significant members of the, the the weymouth falls community uh, and if so, uh, could you tell us a little bit about them, if you know? I want to first say that, you know, being important in community doesn't mean that you have to be a star, that you have to have uh, a legacy that mm-hmm. extends beyond community. And I'm going to mention a name right now because um, his name is Cyril Middleton. Cyril Middleton was uh, a deacon uh, in the church there. He knew how to bring community together in times of trouble. And so things that we don't even know existed today, like um, my mother dies, and I've never dealt with a funeral before in my life. Cyril Middleton would just be on your doorstep. He would just be there to just say, okay, don't worry. 
I got this. And he would make sure that all those points that had to be taken care of, he did it, right? And then he reached out to everybody else to make sure that everybody else knew what was going on and people knew and they came to the house and they did. You know, it was, today we don't even know that that was a thing. Uh Today people stress and struggle about, I got to make the obituary, I got to do. Cyril would have had the people in place to do that, right? And then they would bring it to you and say, is this right? Uh Right? Um, and anytime there was an issue, Mr. Middleton, and there, I'm sure in my lifetime, it was Cyril Middleton, uh, Arnold Jarvis. Um, uh, I could name probably four or five other people, but the community was set up in that way where people did it. They were groomed. They knew what to do. They took care of you. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Today, everything's separate. Right. And so all of a sudden, uh, people are left on their own because they don't have that same sort of network, right? Or, we think that we have networks today because yeah. we have Facebook and mm-hmm. Instagram and whatever, but they're really, not uh, real networks. Not right. connections. Right. That's and, right. And it's more like it, altruistic, you know, yes. from like someone like Searle, right? Yes. Nowadays, if you want to get that, somebody's looking for something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like he's genuinely coming out to, to help. People are confusing <laughs> friendships with social media. Yeah, right. exactly. And colleagues. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. We have Constantly. colleagues because we work here, because yeah. we do that, and you know, we interact with these people every day. They're not necessarily friends, and not that they're not friends, but they're not connected to you in the same way um, as somebody who just knows you because they know you, and we hang out together, and we can we can get mad at each other and go have breakfast together in an, in an hour from now, right? Uh-huh, right. That's a friend, yes. a friend that you can you know get really mad at, and you know um, you go into the thing tonight, like <laughs> you know it's that person that you can't do without, right? Because you can trust them to fall down in uh-huh. front of them, uh-huh. and and they will help you back up instead of telling other they people may laugh that at you, you fell down. Fell, That's but... right. They'll laugh with you and laugh while you're getting up, right? But they won't go and tell everybody yeah. that you fell. Yeah. They'll just help you up. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's, it's true. I mean, that's what, you know, those connections are like, right? I, yeah. I look at this. Marisa <laughs> and I will argue. Hang up the phone. Hour later. Yeah. How's it going? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Right? Exactly. This hasn't been easy to do this. And then we finally get to this point. We've had so many discussions, hung up the phone, mad. But you know what? And I always find this interesting. If you value friendships by the way you fight, and this is the way I think of it. And if you don't fight with your friends, what's what's the point of having a relationship? I used to And and it's not even fight. It's just have differences. It's just, you know, respect each other's differences and be able to, like, move forward. I used to love it because my um, my brother and I would, you know, while we're cooking bacon and eggs and whatever, we would have all these big debates and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And and his wife would say, you guys can argue all day and still be fine with you. We're not, we're not arguing. We're just, we're de- we call it debating. Yeah. Yes. Right. We have, yes. we, we, we are interested in all the same things, but we come at it differently. Absolutely. Right. So, uh, so you spoke a little bit about Sarah Middleton being a deacon in the church. Can you speak a little bit about the role of the church in Weymouth Falls? Um, a little bit. I love to because this is a funny story for me. So, um, Baptists, you know, the United uh, uh, African United Baptist um, Church played a huge role in connecting all the communities, the black communities throughout Nova Scotia. But somewhere in the 50s, late 50s, maybe early 60s, 
my great grandmother had a dispute <laughs> with the um, the Baptist Church, and she moved the Jehovah Witnesses into the community. She actually leased the land to the Jehovah Witnesses to build their first kingdom hall in the area. See, I wish I had a sound effect because I'd be like, say what? <laughs> yeah. And also, um, I'm not sure what year, but the Anglican church was moved into Weymouth Falls as well. And uh, so that church originally existed uh, on the French shore and was moved up to it. In fact, there's a, there's a notation in my great-grandmother's tablet, as they call it. I call it a diary, where she talks about the men moving the church up to Weymouth Falls. It would have been, and maybe still is, the only all-black Anglican church in all of Canada. Wow. Yes. And so for a long period of time, so it was African, United African Baptist, mm-hmm. uh, then the Anglican Church came in, and then my grandmother brought in the Jehovah, my great-grandmother brought in the Jehovah Witnesses, somewhere in the 50s, I believe. Uh, and so we had the three churches, or the three congregations in, in, uh, in Weymouth Falls, so it was quite unique. So you briefly talked about some of the industry there. Um, were there other key economic drivers in the in the Weymouth Falls areas at the time? We talked about lumber a little bit, but yeah. there was lumber was huge. Yeah. you know, so the there were often um, like everybody knows of the big mill, but there were yes. often three mills running at the same time. Uh, so you know, smaller two, you know, there'd usually be two smaller mills somewhere. Um, so people. Um, you know, if you weren't working in the mill, you were working in the woods. If you weren't working in the woods, you were working as a craftsman. Yes. Um, the number mm-hmm. of carpenters, you know, that came out of um, that community were extraordinary. Just Not just Weymouth Falls, but Weymouth Falls, Danvers, Southville. Right. Um, you know, in fact, I love that. So this just happened. So the house that my mother lives, my mother's 84, um, and she lives in the house. Well, I always say the house that she was born in which she disputes. She says, nope, there was a little house right in front of this house. And she remembers them building the house that she's in now when she was about three. Mm-hmm. So I've been renovating the house bits by bit. And when I started looking at the dining room, I said to my mother, oh my gosh, I didn't notice there's a crack in this window. And my mother said, my grandfather put that window in when this house was built. And he cracked it 81 years ago. Wow. The crack has never changed. It's the exact same size in the exact same place. The window has never been replaced. And I go, and it never will be. Exactly. (laughs) You know, even as I renovate, I will work around that because that's significant. That is significant. Right? So the uncles built the house uh, and her grandfather and um, the number of skilled um carpenters in the area were just extraordinary you know what it's it's worth um a really great discussion because you might or might not know of noel johnston right here in east preston so noel Mm -hmm. johnston was originally from creighton street Mm -hmm. um he became he started um it was called oh my goodness it was a mobile bus that he took to the black communities and he taught woodworking in the mobile bus. It was the first of its kind 
And what he was doing was showing young men how to not just make crafts, but you're teaching math mm-hmm. as you're, and they don't even realize it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It was so successful. Um, the shop mobile, it was called the shop mobile. And if you go to uh, the museum of industry in Stellarton, the shop mobile is there. Uh, and I have a great picture of, and there's number, uh, I have great pictures of him in yeah. the shop mobile. Uh, but he was, um, uh, an absolute genius, uh, to understand that this is the way that young men will see, uh, their achievement immediately. Oh, yeah. Uh, while you're teaching a couple of different skills. So we touched on land a little bit and, you know, how the land situation was in Wayne Falls, where there was ownership. Mm. Uh, everybody owned their land. That's right. Uh, one of the things we discussed, uh, you know, previously was like a community land trust, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of communities where people didn't own their land, right? right. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about a community land trust? I can't actually. Okay. I'm, I'm actually uh, personally trying to dig into that myself. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to understand... Um, what the value of a community land trust is, how it is set up, who runs it, you know, what are the mechanics of it. I'm still trying to, to, but I know that um, there are several communities who are absolutely engaged in this conversation. Right. Uh, and, and I'm really um, very anxious and happy to, to uh, get into it as well to okay. see if that is also something because the, the, even though people own their own land in Weymouth Falls, the other situation that we fall in, in today is that those grandparents and great grandparents have all died. Mm-hmm. And so we have a lot of land, over 65 empty houses and properties that are unattended to. Um, and so the people who would be grand and great grandchildren may not have even had any real interaction with that land other than coming once or twice in their lifetime to visit. Right. So they don't have the same affinity to the land or feel the same responsibility. But what we're trying to say to them is, Land is the only commodity that you can own in your lifetime that will never depreciate. And that if you keep it and take care of it, um, you will leave options, but you have to care about it. The reason I've had this conversation about understanding the impact that land as a resource for you and your community and your family is something that's sometimes missing in our community. Sometimes we'll just sell the land, right? And I have this conversation all the time with, you know, we can go to Yarmouth as an example. Like, my parents are getting older. What's going to happen to that? My, my grandmother, that whole, my, so my, what's interesting is my aunt moved into my grandmother's place to keep, to keep the home there. Right? But there's land there that we need to figure out what we're going to do with it. Because in my mind, I don't want to lose that land. That's our, that's our generational wealth there, right? Yeah. Even though it's three hours away, right? But it's still, it's still land and it's. It's, uh, it's really uh, it's really interesting. But when you think about it, I love what you said there, Sean. You said even though it's three hours away, the land as you know it today is homestead land. Mm-hmm. But it might be something else. It could be uh, leased to McCain Foods, you know, f- as farmland to yep. create a certain product or produce right. or right. whatever. It could be leased to government as part of the wind farm, yeah. uh, whatever. So we have to sort of look at, you know, in fact, um, and so between my mother and brother, there's 780 acres, um, 780. 780 acres. 
I've never seen the land. So what yeah. I did was I started uh, this course. I went through Perennia. I looked at, you know, what does the soil contain? You know, is it good land to do a winery? You know, could I do, you know, and and so once I crossed off things and went, I am not interested in being a farmer. (laughs) You know, what I am interested in, though, is is making use of the land. That's there's a lot of farmers there doing great stuff, doing what they do well. What could I do there that would help give them a place to sell their products? Right. And me, something to do that I would do naturally anyway. Right. So I can't talk about what it is yet because it ain't no. happened, but it is underway. I have we don't to want go. it on the record yet. Yeah, not, not on the not not yet. But um, but just to say that it is our responsibility to understand how to be good stewards yeah. of the land that we own and how that land can support mm-hmm. the world as we know it today. Right. Because my grandfather's interest in the land. And my great-grandfather's interest in the land was very different. Yep. They were woodsmen. They were yes. carpenters. Right. Um, and so today the world is different. Um, what are the things that will give my child and possibly grandchildren and nieces and nephews longevity? A hundred years ago, this black family um, started a luxury resort. For blacks. Have you heard this story? No. So the community did everything they could to discourage this black resort from succeeding. So the KKK did their bit, the government did their bit, and eventually they, they, the government expropriated the land from this family. They just got it back. That's in California. Western California, you're yeah, right. Yeah, that's LA. In California. Yeah. What's the name of the family? Um, Beachland, like they have. Yeah, it's, right a, it's on a resort. Yeah, it's yeah, a resort. Yeah. And uh, um, and, and it was yeah. it was for black people because black people couldn't go to resorts. Yeah. And you have and they have the picture of the husband and wife who yeah. owned the the resort and the family just got it back. Yeah. The father just died in the last year or so, so he didn't get to see it happen. But what the the grandson has decided to do is to lease that land for a half a million dollars a year to government. What it does by doing it that way is they're paying less taxes, um, and it's an absolute guaranteed revenue forever. In perpetuity. In perpetuity. I remember that word from uh, and they get from, to decide. From economics and finance. They get to decide. You know, in in twenty or twenty five years, they might feel different about it, and yep. they get to decide then least. that we've decided yeah. that we actually want to own it ourselves. Absolutely. They can change that. That yeah. is so smart. You could have a retreat. Yes. You could have all kinds of things. So right? they they won't be doing anything like that right now because what no. they've done is there is a resort there that's owned by government, right. and what they've done is said, sure, we'll lease it to you. So you just pay us. We don't have to do any work. You're going to now, that that business that you've been running and getting all those revenues off of for the last 50 years or 60 years or whatever, we're now taking that back and Uh you're going to pay us every year. Yeah, to be on this land. Right. Smart. Right? It's a great story. Let's move on. We only got a couple minutes left. (laughs) We got to keep moving. One of the elements that we explored was like segregation and communities. And we, as we go through these communities, we start to uncover segregated schools. Um, and I, as I understand, there was a segregated school in Wayman Falls. Yes. Um, I believe my grandmother attended. Um, she would have definitely. Yeah, up until I think it was grade six or eight. Yeah. Um, 
do you know any stories that were passed down about the segregated schools? What can you tell us about the segregated school in the community? And I assume, would your mother have? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I want you to remember that um, people who were going to segregated schools didn't realize they were going to segregated schools. Yeah, they were just based. schools in the community. Yeah. And they wouldn't have known that there was an option for anything else. Um, and so my mother, grandmother, and all the, most of the, most of the like my grandmother's uh, era and above, usually only went to grade three or four. That okay. school ended at grade six, I believe. Um, and, you know, the stories I hear are not about it being segregated because, again, th- that's not their focus. Right. They're about the fact that they walked to school and they walked back from school and they went walked home for lunch and then went back and, you know, uh, that the schools had... Uh, a fire uh, wood stove in them. And so getting the, you know, the, 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 you know, someone had to go out and get the wood to put in the stove to make sure it was warm when they got in there, that they wore, you know, snow pants, you know, uh, over their dresses for the girls and, um, you know, how deep the snow and snow was, school was never canceled because of a snowstorm, <laughs> but it was canceled because of a thunderstorm. So a snowstorm, all you had to do was walk through the snow to get there. Yeah. But a thunderstorm was a different threat. Yes. Right? That the school could get struck. And so actually, in the middle of a thunderstorm, they would send kids home. So now you're walking out in the rain. Like, <laughs> I hope um, they didn't carry umbrellas. <laughs> they did not carry umbrellas. But but yes. that is mostly what the, the, the those stories are about in them going to segregated schools is who was there. So it would be all the grades in one big room. Yeah. In fact, one of my aunts... One of the, the house actually sits, Sean, I know when last you were in Weymouth Falls. It's been over, it's been over 10 years, yeah. So there's a house, uh, do you know where my mom's house is? I do, yeah. yeah, I do. So if you walk out of my mother's driveway, the house right to the right across the road was the one-room schoolhouse. Really? It became my aunt and uncle's house for many years, my Aunt Glory and Uncle Manny. But uh, that house still has the chalkboard in it. It's, it's behind a great big mirror, but it's the chalkboard. Yeah, and some of the about the segregated schools, like when you hear segregated schools, when you, you talk about it, you know, it wasn't that in terms of from an educational perspective, they were learning from within their community. So it was Afrocentric in that yeah. sense. You were learning from your community. The issues were when you were integrated into public school system. And that's where you ran into a lot of these issues. Well, and part of those issues also were that the people who uh, were teaching weren't necessarily teachers. Mm. They weren't um, uh, licensed as teachers. And so, you know, the, the range of things that you're being taught would may not be at the same level as if you were going to another school. Right. And so it, that also puts you at a deficit. Yeah. I remember in, a, in in very recent, very recent years, I most recently, in the last 15 years, made commentary on a school that was dominantly a black school. Um, and I made commentary on the way the school, the, the children were, uh, challenged or unchallenged and mm-hmm. it was you know uh, them not being able to focus the kids could not focus they could not I could not get their attention and I was so upset about it that I mentioned it to uh, a colleague of mine who was a school principal and about to retire here in HRM and what she said to me was even more alarming than my discussion to her 
she said to me, that's where they put the new teachers. Really? And I was so upset because I thought these are the kids who need the most guidance. Mm-hmm. Sure do. But it was like they were throwaways. Right. I was, I was so ill. Yeah. And I went to bed thinking, what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? And the only thing I really could do that I felt that would have been of value was to talk to other teachers because it's not my skill set mm-hmm. to know how to help these students so that they're engaged in a way that they want to be in that classroom, that they want to know what's going on. It's not, that's not my skill set, but I thought the only way I could help is to talk to people who are trained in that. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So we talked, you know, a lot about, uh, you know, the community, the connection, Uh, just, uh, you know, one, you know, question or area we like to touch on is like, you know, just looking at the legacy of, of the community. And, you know, the message that you think would resonate the most with, uh, you know, current generations, you know, about, you know, what, you know, Weymouth Falls uh, was and how, you know, our people uh, like lived and and really survived uh, in, you know, sometimes hostile conditions. Right. So let us know like what, what your message would be. My message about Weymouth Falls is that um, it's a very unique community. Um, So people who had little but made a lot out of little. People who uh, had many different skills and didn't even realize that they were experts in those fields. Uh Uh, Music, carpentry, fishing, um, uh, craftsmen of so many different uh, types. It was a very, very vibrant community, large families. Um, and so what I would want people to know, uh, either people who have a connection to Weymouth Falls or not, uh, is that there's something there that is still very beautiful and very unique. And that um, in any way that you could preserve, if you are Uh, have any connection to Weymouth Falls at all, if you could even just take one little piece and preserve that piece of the story. You know, we know about the Sam Lankfords. We know about Harold Cromwell, you know, who was the Weymouth Falls reunion. You know, if there was a way to really revive that in a way that brought all generations Mm -hmm. together, do whatever you can to help support uh, the young ones who 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 are reviving this and bringing life to community. Um, in fact, uh, Weymouth Falls is winning the Community Spirit Award for 2023. Uh, so that'll be um, uh, part of uh, probably happening uh, in the uh, actual reunion that yeah. that uh, event will take place. And like one of the, you took the word right off the page that we wrote last night. It's like what what's being done to revive this community, right? And it's like, yeah. wow. And I think you know, you know, people are are uh, so one of the things we used to do is we used to have a Weymouth Falls. A newsletter, and uh, we had six elders who would gather from different parts of the world. So we had people in Chicago and Oklahoma that would give us the news from there. People in Ontario and the West that would give us news from there. Uh, we would be in the Atlantic group, uh, and this newsletter came out I think twice a year. So you could actually see uh, even if someone got married or had a baby, what are the new last names that are now related to you? You know, what are the little stories somebody graduated? We used to do this, um, and so a couple years ago i tried to revive that again and it didn't quite take off but, so you just mentioned like you know other places in the states that we haven't really 
like her oh, with Chicago, connections. Yeah, Oklahoma. Like, you should look at uh, CBC's The Invasion of the Flyboys. The Invasion of the Flyboys is a CBC article. It's a radio broadcast that talks to... So uh, just real quickly, the uh, a friend of mine came to me and said, Juanita, my father ran into an old friend of his from St. John, New Brunswick. He never married. And I said, you know, he never married. He said, are you kidding? He said, a black man in the 50s and 60s didn't have a hope in you know where here because all these pilots were coming up uh, from the states into St. John, New Brunswick to the dances and all the girls married these black pilots and he said, you know any? And I said, I know seven. I know seven. So we heard a lot about like a lot of different avenues that we, you know, explored for, you know, uh, for, you know, to gain competencies to, you know, really take care of our families. We never heard of pilots. So, um, yes, yeah, so the Loring Air Force Base, Air Force Base trained uh, pilots, and there were a lot of black pilots there. Uh, and they would come up because there was a black community in St. John, and they would come and they'd go to the dances. They met these girls. Wow. So there's a great broadcast where he flew down to Chicago to talk to my cousin Faye and her husband, Eugene. Faye has since passed away. Uh, but the other story you might want to know about is uh, my uncle Walter, who became Canada's first Black, Black jet fighter pilot. Yeah. What? I've heard, I think I've heard of Walter. Yeah. yeah. So he passed away, unfortunately. Uh, but um, his story is incredible. And so when we talk about education, um, his uh, teachers wrote his mother and told his mother to take him out of school in grade three because he had no aptitude. He wouldn't learn. He'd be a woodcutter. He became not only Canada's first black jet fighter pilot, he is one of the creators of the Snowbirds. There are three creators of the flying team, the Snowbirds. And in his retirement, he became a special envoy to the United Nations in aviation safety. So... Can I just ask a question? What's his last name? Was it Peters. Peters, okay. I wasn't Walter, sure. Peters. Walter Peters. Yeah. And two of his daughters are, are, are around. And uh, one of them is also in the armed forces. So... Um, I can hook you up. Oh, <laughs> that's on record. So he's, yeah. you know, I'm gonna follow up. Oh, man. So this is why we love doing this. Yes, it's honestly the most amazing thing. We've talked numerous times, and so we, let's maybe yeah, we'll talk about our connections right now. So yeah. it's really interesting. Sorry for throwing that at you. <laughs> he was just, he was. Um, as I'm driving here, I'm thinking about my connection to Wayne Falls. Yeah, and obviously my connection. We've Heard me speak about her quite fondly as my grandmother. She's left quite a legacy impression on me. Um, but what I found out not too long ago was how Juanita and I were connected. So Juanita, you can explain how we're connected. So Sean's grandmother was actually my mother's babysitter. <laughs> <laughs> she was a trusted uh, kid in the neighborhood. Uh, just lived like four or five doors over. And uh, she would babysit my mom when wow. my mom was small, my mother and my uncle. So, yeah. uh, so my grandmother did, and I said that a lot, you know, that domestic work. Um, she started that at a very young age as well, too, around like 13, 14. But I even say it's beyond like domestic work. That's just community service. Yeah. Yeah, right? And I like, think she was probably 15, like 14, 15, 15. Yeah. because my mom was a baby. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, but, my, but she was uh, with my mom until my mom was at least four, I think, three or four. So she would wow. be called in to babysit, yeah. you know. Well, and that was interesting because I always talk about like my, at times, what would happen to my grandmother. It wasn't, it was Mavalette was one place she would go, but also Annapolis Royal. And that's a long, long ways. ways, right? And she would stay there for weeks or sometimes it could even be longer than that yeah. as well, too. But then I asked her and I went back and listened to the recording. She's 13, 14, starting that, right? And 
you know, she worked in those homes her whole entire life, right? And I and I, I always say this too, the end result is, you know, when my grandmother passed away, they looked for her CPP benefit, but she didn't have one because she's worked in these homes her whole entire life. So that's how we're connected. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really interesting. It's a small world, but yeah. I don't think I have any connection. Mm. The only connection I have is that my grandfather, I was a boxer, David Downey, uh, and he was trained by uh, Sam Langford's trainer. Yeah, no, no, his grandson. So his, uh, I forget the what's his what's his last name. Oh, he's a Langford. Aubrey. Aubrey Langford. Yeah. That was uh, my grandfather's trainer. Okay. Yeah. So, like you know, and on my family <laughs> line, Jarvis's. Cromwell's and Langford's are on yeah. all, all my yeah. And Sparks, side. I think, are in your line, too. Are they? I think so. So I think um, Smith, Ooh. Sparks, Smith is in your line. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is, there is a lot. Of I, course. I get a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have to look at, my, you know, yeah. sometimes the stories get a little fuzzy, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's always interesting. Well, so and what happens is sometimes you'll lose the line when the mother or the grandmother marries. So you lose mm. her line yeah. because that becomes the dominant Langford or yeah. whatever it is becomes the, but I believe Sparks is in your line as well. I wonder whose side actually. I think on your mother's, your it could be. grandmother's mother's side. So that's interesting. So Catherine, not... Catherine is your great grandmother or aunt? Does that name sound familiar? Catherine Smith? doesn't no i'll ask my mom but yeah. it's in that yeah it's in that area if you had asked me these connections 30 years ago i was much clearer on mm-hmm. them then because mm-hmm. i was living it right so i'm living in the house with my grandmother and my grandfather and so the lines are clearer because i'm seeing it every day yeah but as you get older i go okay how did that work now mm-hmm. you know how because some people are related in more than one way yep right so yep. i have uh, three individuals, two women and a man, who married uh, uh, one woman and two men over here. So this house and this house. Three people from this house married three people from that house. <laughs> right? So my mother has uh, double first cousins. Right. Yes. The mothers are sisters, yes. the fathers are brothers. Well, Is that unique to like our communities? No, just no, 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 no. It was, it was just the... You know the 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 times, yeah. right? People didn't travel I as heard much. My dad said that. He said that's just how it would yeah. work. Then. Yeah, yeah. People didn't travel as much, so you know, and you you uh, you absolutely knew that you couldn't, you know, you couldn't look at your first cousin, <laughs> but you're hoping that you know by the, the third, third the they third, were still yeah. cute. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, hold on. You know what's interesting? I just figured something out. You said you're not connected, but she mentioned a name, Middleton. Middleton. And I know you're connected to the Middletons. Yeah. My grandmother married a Middleton. Who was your grandmother? Uh, Judy Gabriel, but she married Walter Middleton. Okay. So the Middletons were in Yarmouth. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there were two Middletons who married into Weymouth Falls. Right. And, um, um, yeah, and, and built their whole lives yeah, there. Yeah, because I know. And Jarvis. Florence, like, right? related to the Jarvises with that because of the roll bars. Yeah. Like in, yeah. in Yarmouth. Yeah. So. I'm sure if you looked... Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Find something. That's yeah, what we're, all connected. Connected. we're all connected. We're all connected. Absolutely. Let's not like who are we kidding. Oh, this is this is perfect. I need to look up Noel Johnston. 
Yes. Mobile, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that Shop was, Mobile. Yeah. Shop Mobile, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Sellerton um, Museum of Industry. I'm going to be heading up that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, shoot, like we did an episode on uh, St. John's. Mm-hmm. So uh, we learned a little bit about that, but you shed even more light on, you know, the community than, uh, than what we did, like, during our episode. And yeah. It's, uh, it, 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 it's truly a part of, you know, the oh. African-Canadian, you know, uh, Another great experience. person to talk to, two people, if you're looking at the Loyalist story in New Brunswick, the Black Loyalist story, is Ralph Thomas yeah, and David Peters. Yeah. 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 They're, they're part of the... Yeah. Uh, so they started Prude. Yeah. Prude, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So David Peters and uh, Ralph Thomas. And if you listen to that uh, invasion of the Flyboys, you can actually just Google it. Yeah. It'll come up on CBC. Um, they're both part of that, and David would be my my cousin, my first, my dad's first cousin. All That's right, perfect. That's thank great. you so much. Uh, we learned so much from you today. Is there anything else you want to talk to that you feel is relevant? Like, I just want to say I want to thank you guys for inviting me to this because it's been so enjoyable to reminisce and talk about some of those things that I actually almost forgot about. Thank you for listening to the Loyalist Connections podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and gained some new insights. This episode was produced by your host, Maurice Gabriel Downey, and myself, Sean Smith, of the Loyalist Connections Creative Group. We want to send out a special thanks uh, to our community partners, the Black Cultural Center and the Black Loyalist Heritage Center and Society for their continued support. And shout out our alma mater, St. Mary's University, especially the St. Mary's University Goresbrook Research Institute Partnership for making resources available to us to complete this project. We encourage you to join us as we continue to host these meaningful conversations and uncover information on our communities and other important aspects of our history. In the meantime, don't forget to listen, like, follow, and share the Loyalist Connection podcast on all your favorite platforms. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at Loyalist Connection Podcast for updates and behind the scenes content. And until the next episode, stay stay connected. connected.